I have these colleagues and groups of friends in both worlds that really look at me strangely when I tell them, oh, I'm also a crime fiction author, oh, I'm also an accountant. And so I just wanted to find shared territory. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, CPA, and your host for this show. Well, we have an unusual guest, at least for our show, for you today. Mindy Mejia is joining us, and she definitely falls within the mission of our show to highlight all the different things you can do with a background in accounting, or how that background can help you in many different roles. But she's also definitely an outlier for us. Mindy is a CPA, but she started as a liberal arts major, found herself in accounting and worked her way up, and then became a full-time author. And yes, I said full-time. And it was around then that she took the CPA exam and passed it all, the first time, I might add. She has definitely a very interesting background, not just for our show, but just in general. Very interesting. I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation we have, not just about her accounting career progression, but particularly around becoming a full-time author and in crime fiction. Nonetheless, she really has a cool story. If you do enjoy and learn something from this episode, please share it out on social media. We love it when we gain new listeners. And I know I've said that a few times, but I really do appreciate it. And if you happen to be an accounting professor or you're involved in a university accounting club type organization, I'm happy to jump on a Zoom conference if you need individuals to speak to a group you know, regarding careers. I do that locally as it is. And now that we've all gotten more used to distant meetings, as they say, I'm expanding my availability. So if that would benefit you, just shoot me an email or a LinkedIn message and we can arrange something. I'm always happy to help. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's guest. Here's Mindy Mejia. Well, hello, Mindy. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. No problem. No problem. This should be fun. Well, for the audience, we have another referred guest with us on the program today, Mindy Mejia. Mindy is acquainted with one of our former forensic specialist guests, and she has a unique background herself, actually. Mindy started with more of a general business or liberal arts background and worked her way up in accounting and eventually got her CPA certification as well, but now is quite the published author and writes on crime fiction. Very interesting stuff. So this is going to be a fun interview for all of us, I think. Mindy, I really am curious to share your career journey with the audience. So let's start at the beginning. Take us through the early years and and how you eventually worked your way into the accounting field. How did all that start for you? Yes, I'm happy to start at the beginning. I don't think you can make sense of my career any other way than (laughs) going all the way back and seeing where it all started. Uh, My first exposure to accounting was actually through credit. I was uh, a student at the University of Minnesota uh, in the liberal arts and just happened to get a job at JCPenney Credit Services, which was a call center servicing the JCPenney credit card. So that was my first kind of job that I had through college. And then I left that job after I graduated to go do the requisite backpack tour across Europe. And when I came back, they had moved the call center to India. So there was no more job for me there. So what I did is I moved into out of the retail 
side of the world and to the corporate side and found a job as a credit assistant for a manufacturer here in the Twin Cities and ended up spending the next 16 years with the same employer. So kind of unusual to be at one place for that long anymore. And I didn't intend to spend my whole corporate career there, but that's just how it worked. I kept getting more assignments, more challenges. I had bosses and mentors that really helped me grow and there was always opportunity there. So there hadn't really been any reason to leave. So that's kind of how I got my start. And it was just really on the job experience where a boss would say, hey, you know, you're pretty good with numbers. Why don't you try reconciling these accounts? Why don't you try doing these journal entries? And so just gradually worked my way over into general accounting from credit. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad you touched on that because, you know, as you would expect, we don't see too many people that spend, you know, that much time with one company anymore. Right. I'm always curious to hear how it happened and how that worked out. It sounds like part of it is that you made yourself available and more flexible, you know, (laughs) about doing other duties and and those kinds of things. Would you say that's the case? I would definitely say that's the case. And I feel like all of the opportunities that I've had and that I've been given and have reached for really have been because I have been interested in learning new things and and wanting, you know, being open to things that weren't necessarily in my job description. But I thought, hey, that would be really interesting to know. I would like to know how to do that and put that in my skill set. And so I feel like that's just good advice in general, you know, to keep yourself open, keep your mind open. I've always been sort of a glutton for education, and that's served me well. Okay. I don't want to speed through those 15 years too quickly because that that is a long time. (laughs) (laughs) It Um, it is a long time. Yes. I did. did So like I said, I started as a credit assistant. Then they upgraded me to credit and accounting assistant. I was briefly a general accounting supervisor and then moved back over into credit as a credit manager and eventually became a global credit manager. So overseeing our our worldwide operations while at the same time also the revenue accounting, long-term contracts, and really the revenue side of, of the accounting world. So that was kind of my skill set, my specialty. I helped set up a permanent establishment in Mexico, also tried to avoid some permanent establishments in other countries, and really, really did have fun with that global exposure, you know, and different accounting concerns in different jurisdictions. So like I said, always wanting to learn. And along the way, I had uh, various mentors and and supervisors tell me, you know, you should really go back to school for accounting. and pursue your CPA. And I always, at the same time that I was doing this at this one employer, I was also writing on the side. I I typically wrote on my lunch breaks and was writing fiction stories. And, And so I felt like that was kind of enough to have on my plate. But then when I was the global credit manager and my supervisor, the controller, I was promoted to CFO, leaving the controller position open. And I thought, wow, you know, if I had my CPA, I could apply for that. And just that I kind of hit that wall where I could no longer grow organically in the workplace and needed credentials in order if I wanted to go any further down that path. And so that was the point where I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to school. I'd already gone back and got my Master of Fine Arts in Writing, but I said, you know what? Now is the time I need to go back and get a second degree in accounting so that I can sit for the CPA exam. Okay. 
And did you quit your job to do that, or did you do that while you were going to school? Well, I did. I continued to go to school while I was at my job. They had a wonderful tuition reimbursement program, so they were very supportive of me doing that. So I did, I continued to go to school at night and then uh, working during the day and also had a family on the side and a house (laughs) and all the other, you know, trappings of life. But at the same time, the first semester that I went back to school, which I was at St. Kate's in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they had a, a great second degree program where I could just take the accounting classes. I didn't have to go back for any other generals. So it was very, very streamlined, perfect for, for career, you know, people. And the first semester that I was back there, I ended up getting an agent, a literary agent. So I'd been querying. I'd had one book published through a small press out of Oregon called Ashland Creek Press. That was my debut novel. But you can't really send your book to anywhere in New York, to any of the big publishing houses in New York without having a literary agent. That's kind of your first step as a traditionally published author. And so I got my agent my first semester back at school for accounting. So it was interesting that both of these careers started to take off at the same time, (laughs) that I was going to hopefully gain new opportunities with the accounting degree and my CPA. And at the same time, I also got an agent. And then my second semester at school, we sold the book in an auction. So multiple publishers bidding on it. And it became a breakout book that was translated in over 20 languages around the world. So never expected that that would happen in that particular career path. Oh my gosh. Okay. So lots of questions here. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So how does one just happen to get a literary agent? <laughs> I've done some <laughs> self-publishing, you know, it's, I know nothing about the world you're talking about. Did you search them out? Did you just happen to have the right contacts? I mean, how did that come about? Because I'm sure some, some others listening to this would be curious. It is notoriously difficult to get a literary agent. So yeah, and there's so many other tracks to publishing now. Like you said, you're self-published. There's so many ways to get your content out there without going through a traditional publisher. But I knew I was a very busy person and had a lot on my plate, and I didn't have time to really oversee the whole process of self-publishing. I wanted someone who would really be my advocate, and that's what a literary agent is. They're your salesman. They're your advocate. They um, represent your interests with any contract and any publishing house. So, yeah, what you do, it's a very standard process, really. You query. There's a very formulaic query letter that you use that tells a little bit about you, kind of gives that blurb about the book that you might read on the back cover, that sort of quick, snappy blurb, and then any credentials that you might have that could be of interest. Like, oh, by the way, I already have a following of 10,000 people on Instagram, people that might all, might be easily converted to readers. And so you send this letter out to agents that there's all sorts of lists online that you can find who is you know, a literary agent that's accepting queries. And you just cross your fingers and hope that somebody is interested and that, that there will be a bite. And if there is, somebody can ask, an agent can ask you for a f- couple pages, a chapter or two. If they're really interested, they'll ask to see the whole manuscript. And so I got very, very lucky. I, with my agent, she's at a, an agency that also represents John Grisham and all sorts of very esteemed commercial fiction writers. And it was really the best place for me to be. So I got very, very, very lucky <laughs> with my agent. Wow. So I have a good friend that's written several successful 
business books now. But 15 years ago, I remember when he was getting started, and I remember a lot of turndown letters or maybe even lack of responses. I'm not sure. I oh, sure. Yes. Yes. Did you get a lot of rejections in the beginning? or Yeah, you can paper your office walls with rejection okay. letters if you so choose, <laughs> if that's okay. motivating for you. And a rege- I mean, rejection is just standard. It's kind of the language of traditional publishing, you know, so you become very hardened to rejection. You expect a form letter rejection or, you know, like your friends, nothing at all, no response. If you get a rejection with any sort of unique feedback, if the agent has taken any time to say, this isn't for me, but I liked what you were doing here, or this is why it wasn't for me. I couldn't quite get into the characters or, you know, this certain, any sort of individual feedback is a good sign. You kind of take that as an acceptance, even though it's a rejection and, and really thrive on any comments that you can get that are, are free feedback, you know, and can help you revise and polish, pivot and submit again. Okay. And then you said your book was sold at auction. So is that publishing companies that are bidding on the book for the right to publish it? Or what does that refer to? Exactly. Exactly. That's what it is. It was a round-robin auction. So there were four different publishers that were all interested, which is extremely unusual. Um, I was not ever expecting to be in that situation, but we just, I guess, hit the market at the right time. My agency is extraordinary, (laughs) and so she knew the editors to send this book to that would be interested. So all four of them, you know, in round-robin format would submit their bid for the book. We got to set terms, and we got to set more advantageous terms. Usually, you're kind of at, you're not in a position to negotiate. If there's one publisher that's interested, you kind of take the contract or you don't. You might be able to tweak a few things. But since we had multiple parties that were interested, we did have more control. So we were, for example, able to retain worldwide rights. Typically, a publisher, a U.S. publisher would say, we have worldwide rights. We can sell the sub rights to Germany, to London, to you know Singapore. And then they would reap the revenue from that. We were able to retain those rights. And so my agency was able to sell those sub rights directly and they came straight to us. Wow. It was a surreal few days during that whole auction. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. It felt like that kind of first date nausea, you know, that you're like, oh, what's going to happen here? It was very a surreal time. Okay. Wow. So I saw a few book titles. Which book was this? So that book was Everything You Want Me to Be. which was my second book. Like I said, my first book came out from a small press in Oregon. Uh, Everything You Want Me to Be was my first book that was published by Simon & Schuster, who I've been with for my last three books now. Wow. I'm just curious, which one was the first book? My first book was The Dragon Keeper. Okay, okay. Wow, Dragon Keeper. So yeah, Everything You Want Me to Be was really the breakout book that actually ultimately ended in me leaving my corporate accounting job. It was so successful that my editor at Simon & Schuster said, okay, we want the next book. Well, everything you want me to be had taken four years to write on my lunch breaks you know, during while I was working in accounting. And so she wasn't really excited about the four-year plan. She wanted something <laughs> a little quicker. And she said, you know, we, we want your next book. We want it in six months. And made an offer for that book that really propelled me to take that leap. And 
leave my job that I had been at for 16 years and learned so much at. And I was just finished my accounting degree. So I was ready. I was able to sit for the CPA exam, but it was a point where I had to choose. And so I ended up choosing the writing career because how many chances do you get? So I said, okay, I will do this. I'll leave the corporate job. And I finished my following book, Leave No Trace, in the six-month window, handed it in by the deadline, and just moved from there. But at the same time, I didn't want to leave behind all of that accounting knowledge and everything that I'd worked for and learned. And so even though I was no longer at that job in my global credit manager role, I still thought I really want to sit for the CPA exam. I do want this credential. And so I sat for the exam uh, while I was writing full-time and ended up passing it all the sections on the first try and, and got my CPA in the spring of 2018, I believe. Gosh, it seems like a long time wow. ago now. <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. Well, just for the record, yeah, I was going to be polite and slide in a few other questions before I ask you at what point you were able to start making a living off of being an author, but I appreciate <laughs> you bringing that part up because I was really curious. So I can't pass up the CPA journey, particularly for our audience. So you passed all of them on the first try. I didn't hear anything in there about a review course. Did you do, how did you review? Because Absolutely. I did Becker. I had one of my professors at St. Catherine's recommended Becker and and just really staunchly was a supporter of, of their review program. And so I trusted her and signed up for it. And I have no regrets. Uh, Peter Olinto, uh, they, they, they got me through. Tim Garrity and Peter, they definitely uh, know their stuff and they know how to prepare you. So I would absolutely recommend that course. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Because when people become as specialized as you were in their career, even though the education is recent, sometimes it, it can be a challenge. So I, I was curious about that. Exactly. Yes. I mean, I really hadn't had any exposure to, as much exposure to tax. I, I'd been through several internal audits but obvious, and had one class in audit, but, you know, there's so much to learn that, yeah, the review course was instrumental in my being successful the first time. Beautiful. So tell us about your books. I mean, there's four of them in there. What, tell us, I mean, it just Just in general, I mean, what is each one about? (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, I write because I want our people to look up your books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be great, and I think they'll enjoy the last one in particular. But I'll start at the beginning. All of my books are standalone, so that means that they they're not part of a series. You don't need to read one before another. They all exist independently in their own worlds. My first book that I wrote, actually, I got the idea for when I was sent to our London office to help them prepare for an audit. They were coming under an internal audit, I think, in a few months' time, and were kind of panicking. It was They didn't have all their documentation. They didn't know what to do. And so my home office sent me there and helped me. I was able to help them prepare for their audit and get them ready. While I was there, I came across this newspaper article about the Komodo dragon who lived at the Chester Zoo in London. And this dragon had had a virgin birth. She was a female dragon alone in an enclosure, and she laid a clutch of viable eggs. And it was the most amazing story to me because like like I said, I'm a glutton for education and I had no idea 
that that was possible, that sexual animals could reproduce asexually. It just blew my mind. And so I couldn't stop thinking about this story. I actually tore the paper out of the whole article out of the hotel's newspaper and just stole it, took it to my room and kept reading it. And eventually I ended up writing a story that dealt with that. So The Dragon Keeper, my first book, is about a Komodo dragon's virgin birth at the zoo and the scientific, religious and commercial consequences of that miracle, quote unquote. So that ended up being my first published novel. And my second book, after I got The Dragon Keeper out in the world, my second book, Everything You Want Me to Be, that I wrote over four years on my lunch breaks at work, was a very different book. This was my first book that was kind of in the crime fiction genre, in the crime fiction world. It was a murder mystery. And it was a murder mystery surrounding Hattie Hoffman, who's a high school senior. She has found stabbed to death in an abandoned barn in rural southern Minnesota, my home state. And it's about her life, the months leading up to her death. So she tells part of the story. And the sheriff who's investigating her murder, he also tells part of the story. And there's a third point of view character who is the teacher directing the play that she stars in on the night of her death, who kind of winds those two timelines together. And so it's very traditional sort of murder mystery uh, where we try to figure out what happened as we move both towards and away from her death in two alternating timelines. So that was the second book, the one that was kind of uh, broke open my career and allowed me to write full time. My third book, Leave No Trace, that I had to deliver in six months, (laughs) was the story of Josiah and Lucas Blackthorn, a father and son who go camping in a place called the Boundary Waters. It's the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Have you ever heard of this place? No, I, I don't get out much, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> You're in Texas. I, I'm just curious. It's actually this huge stretch of wilderness, a thousand glacial lakes, a million acres of just untainted wilderness along the Minnesota-Canada border. They go camping here and disappear. All that's found of them is a tattered tent that looks like it was ravaged by a bear, and they're put on the missing persons list and presumed dead until a decade later when the son returns. Uh, He's found violent, uncommunicative. He's taken to a psychiatric facility in Duluth, Minnesota, where he meets the point-of-view character Maya. Maya is a speech therapist, and she is tasked with making this, this boy who's come back from the dead tell his story. And so it's, uh, it's a very it's a different book than the first two. All of my books are, are very different. <laughs> but that one came out in the fall of 2018. And then my last book, which just published in April of this year called Strike Me Down, is the story of a forensic accountant who is chasing $20 million in prize money that's gone missing from a kickboxing tournament in Minneapolis. And she has connections to the owners of this company, the gym called Strike, which is this elite anti-corporate feminist empire. And as she is chasing, she's got one week to find the money as she's chasing the answers. Obviously, the consequences of the truth become deadly. Wow. Is that how you know Leah, Leah Weasholder? 
It is, yes. So I had done, obviously, a lot of research for Nora. I'm a CPA, but I'm not a forensic accountant. So I used a lot of the resources of the ACFE, their online courses. I subscribed to Fraud Magazine. And then when the book came out, I, I did an, a Q&A with them, an interview. And we had a giveaway of a copy of the book to, for the ACFE. And Leah uh, read the Q&A. And then she reached out to see if I wanted to be on the Investigation Game podcast. So it came about through the ACFE that I met Leah. Okay. I wasn't sure where that connection was. And honestly, when we set this up, I thought when I heard crime fiction, I thought that you had four books on forensic accounting or something. I had no idea the variety and just, uh, yeah, this is interesting stuff. Interesting. Yeah, I have trouble focusing, I guess, on one area. (laughs) I tend to jump around. But it's interesting. All of the reviews for Strike Me Down have been great. And one of the common themes throughout the reviews is, I didn't know accounting was exciting. And it just makes my heart like dance with joy because that was my entire motivation for writing Strike Me Down. I have these two such separate careers, it seems, you know, with my accounting career and my crime fiction career. And I have these colleagues and groups of friends in both worlds that really look at me strangely when I tell them, oh, I'm also a crime fiction author. Oh, I'm also an accountant. And so I just wanted to find shared territory. And I knew that there was a world where I could bring accounting into crime fiction, into thrillers, and those two would marry very well. And they do, because as we all know here, um, forensic accounting, forensic accountants are the detectives of the financial world. And so the whole book plays out like a police procedural where Nora is gathering evidence. She's interviewing witnesses, narrowing down her pool of suspects. So it does, it really adopts very similar formulas that crime fiction readers are familiar with. Wow. Where do we find these? Are they, you know, on Amazon or? Oh, yes. They're they're Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your favorite independent bookstore. Um, You can really get them anywhere. Audible, if you listen to your books, if you prefer, uh, you know, electronic books, they're on Kindle, Nooks. However you get your books, you'll be able to find them. Wow. it's amazing. So this is interesting. Liberal arts major, gets into credit. A great career in credit, decides to become a CPA towards the end, has already become an author at that point, and now you're a full-time author. What do you find the most challenging about being an author? Or maybe another way to ask this is what has sort of surprised you now that you're in it full-time? Well, I think the most challenging piece of being an author is that it's not all in your control. Right. I mean, I think as, as a professional in the corporate world or at your own company, you have a lot of not necessarily control for the larger things that happen within the company, but you can control the path of your own career. You know, you can decide this is what I'm going to focus on and put my effort towards and I want to be successful and I'm going to work hard and get there. That's not always the case in writing. It can be a lot more capricious. You can write the best book you've ever read, the best book you've ever written. You can write your best book. But if it hits the market wrong, if it's bad timing, it might not be successful. So there's so much that's out of my control as an author. That can be very frustrating because I am used to setting my mind to a task and accomplishing it. I mean, that's how I was raised, just work hard and get it done. But that's not always the way this industry works. So I've really had to manage my expectations and decide, okay, all I can do is write the best book I can 
launch it to the best of my ability, and then write another good book. So that has been a challenge, especially, you know, for somebody who has a really let's-do-it-all sort of a mindset. What do you enjoy about it now that you're full-time? I just enjoy the excuse to really live in my own head and develop these worlds where I can control the circumstances and the consequences and the narrative. We don't always get to control our own narratives, but when you're writing a book, you have full control. You know, nothing happens that you don't want to happen. And so just being paid to do that is a dream come true, an absolute dream come true. And the best reward for it is just hearing from a reader, somebody I've never met before that has encountered my work and has been moved by it. That's the best reward. This may be a, an unusual or awkward question, so I'm going to apologize in advance. But no, I, go I just, ahead. <laughs> I'm thinking, so when you work in accounting, if you're in industry, financial accounting, you know month-end close is going to come up every month. Oh, if you're yeah. in tax, you know tax season is going to come around next year. If you're an audit, you know that the company's going to need an audit next year. When you write books, you finish a book and that book is done. You know, and particularly if you're writing standalone books, each one is its own project. What does the future look like for you? Do you feel pretty good about an ongoing list of ideas for books? (laughs) (laughs) That's a a great question. Yes, because we do have this great schedule and rhythm to our work when we work in all those different areas of accounting, right? We can kind of rely on that rhythm. And it's a completely different rhythm in the world of writing books. But there is a rhythm to it. There's the initial idea. There's exploring the idea to see if it has legs, you know, if it can really sustain itself over 100,000 words and 300 pages. Then there's the first draft, which is messy and, and terrible, but exciting too. And then there's the revision, you know, where you take the messy thing and turn it into something that someone would want to read. And then there's your deadline, turning it in, and then you start getting editorial feedback and you go through content edits and then you go through copy edits. And there's first pass pages, second pass pages. There is a rhythm to publishing as well. It's just on a much longer horizon and not always a repeatable horizon. You know, one book might be four years, one book might be six months. And so you do really need to adapt your timeline, you know, your deadlines to those varying, varying timelines for getting the book done. Ideas to your question have never been an issue for me. I always have a running list of ideas and they just kind of percolate in my head. So right now I've got like three or four books that I'm sort of like, I think about and I'll think of something else for and we'll see which one pops up and and says, hey, write me next. And I keep a list on my computer just called book ideas where I will jot in like certain notes about each of these things as they come up to see which one really, and that'll be a conversation that I have with my agent too. You know, I might throw two or three ideas by her and say, which one do you think I should work on next? You know, because I could go any of these routes and we'll have that conversation to see what she thinks would be best for the next book in my career. Wow. I have to ask, how do you explore the idea? When you said the first step is exploring the idea, what do you do personally to see if it's a viable idea? 
A few different things. So usually I have to research, you know, at least something. I need to see, you know, I've got this character that I'm working on now for my next book. My fifth is a a physics professor, and I don't know a lot about physics. It was actually the only subject I took in school, pass, fail, (laughs) because (laughs) it was not my subject. But I'm fascinated by it and a huge fan of, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And so I was like, I really want to write this character. I think I can. So I have to start researching, like, okay, what kind of physicist is she? Well, she's an atmospheric physicist. What does that mean? What's her backstory? Why does she have this plot line? And I'll just, I'll research the things I think I might need to know, the location that the book is going to be in. I'll think about the location for a while, if it makes sense thematically, and just jot down sketches of potential scenes. Like, this could be a pivotal scene that I'm thinking about. Some writers have a very structured outline that they will do, and that's their first step, is they will outline the entire book, chapter by chapter, scene by scene, and then they'll write according to the outline. That's not my process. I've tried to do that, and that sounds like logical, right, that you would just write the outline and then write the book, but I tend to let my characters grow on the page. I don't always know their motivations, what they would or wouldn't do. You know, sometimes you read a book and it just it feels like, well, why would they do that? You know, that doesn't make any sense. And I, that's when you haven't let the character grow enough and understood them enough to know what they're possible, what, what is possible in their world, what constrains them, what opportunities they find. And so I just kind of write out scenes and, and then I write the first draft. And that's just how I explore ideas. I try to expose myself to as much of what that character would be exposed to as I can to really get myself in their heads. Okay. Just to be real, real, you know, transparent about what is a typical day or week look like for you, a work week look like for you as an author. (laughs) I'm curious because, you know, most of us are accountants listening to this program, so... Definitely. Well, and we're recording this in June of 2020. So in the before time, you know, before coronavirus, a typical day for me would be I've got two elementary school age kids. So I would get up, get them ready for school, put them on the bus. And then I've got a home office, which I would go to then and have a six to seven hour stretch of time where I could write, revise, edit, market, you know, whatever I need to do for where I'm at in that particular book. And so I do have solid chunks of time throughout the day. I'll take a lunch break typically, but I do always have to turn off like internet, social media, anything like that is just a distraction. And uh, so I do really need to, to just purely be with the book. And so I try to turn off my Wi-Fi, get at least six to seven good hours in before my kids get off the bus. And then later in the evening, I might have more time for marketing types of things, thinking about audience, Q&As, interviews, that kind of thing. I'll, I'll work on, I can work on that with the kids around, but it's a lot harder and it's been more challenging now with our world being a bit locked down. My kids have been home doing distance learning, so it's, it's been a challenge in these last couple of months to find time. 
Yes. Yeah, it has for everybody. Well, well, thank you. I've had all these visions going through my head. You know, you sitting in a Starbucks with a little beret hat on, you know, with your laptop, just watching the world, you know, or, or in a field with your laptop, you know, just with the sun coming up over there. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's so funny. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's funny because there's these stereotypes that we have about careers. You know, there's the boring accountant stereotype, which I think we are all so over, you know, and that's yeah. part of why I wanted to write Strike Me Down is to really flip that that trope on its head and say, you know what, accounting is exciting and this is why. And and then we have the stereotypes of artists as these very, you know, just out of touch, you know, <laughs> woo-woo-y sort of people who, who are just, you know, staring off into space and, and thinking. But at the same time, artists are business people. You know, we have offices and we have to get work done and sell that work and promote that work. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've tried to do as well as, as bring accounting and thrillers together on the page for Strike Me Down, is I've also started doing a seminar for artists, for writers particularly, called Tax Advice for Writers, where I really, I just pull authors together who don't have a strong sense of how to make a business plan, how to handle their business. Uh, because culturally, we have this idea of artists not as business people, right? But the IRS taxes them all the same. So they need to be able to manage their businesses and be strong and confident in what they're doing. So I'll walk them through what income is, what they can deduct, and how to plan and make budgets. And it's just, it's been really satisfying for me to be able to bring that knowledge to the writing world and be an advocate for being business people and embracing your identity as a business as well as as an artist. Okay. I was curious if you were somehow mixing the two or still doing anything in the realm of accounting consulting because your CPA certification is so recent, you know, so that, uh, yeah. It is still active. Yes. And actually, this is the first year that I've, I've helped out a friend of a friend who owns a wealth management company. She's a financial advisor here in the Twin Cities. And I've been doing tax returns for her clients this year, which I hope is a good way to continue to use my CPA and add value. And hopefully going forward, it will be a great fit that I can just work the tax season and then write for the rest of the year. So it's a little bit of a strange season to start it this year. It was a difficult, I think, just to pivot with the constant, you know, legislation and worries and concerns in the world right now. But yeah, I'm hoping to be able to continue to use my CPA. And I think wherever you are in your career, accounting knowledge will only help you. Being an accountant and using your credentials in accounting will only get you further in whatever path you choose. Makes sense. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> right. you know, actually, the variety in your work is, I would think, is beneficial to to being an author. You know, just, just see other things, and, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Well, oh my gosh, there's so many things we could touch on, but we are getting close to time, so I better get to the last three questions that, that I end sure, on sure. all the podcasts with. The first one is usually the easiest, and you may have already answered some of this stuff, but. First question, from a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Can I cheat and give two moments? A few people have, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just want to touch on my proudest accounting moment is definitely earning my CPA because it was, it was a path that I was no longer on professionally at that point. 
but I was very important to me to continue to pursue that credential and to put all of my education to use in gaining that. And so that was definitely my proudest accounting moment. My proudest writing moment was definitely the publishing of Everything You Want Me To Be, that book that it took me four years to write. Because at the time I was writing it, I had no agent. I had no path to publication. I was just doing it for me, for my own sanity, because for me, writing does feed me, you know, intellectually and emotionally. And so I was only really doing it for myself for those four years. And to have it be published, find me an agent and be published to such, you know, wide markets was my proudest moment in terms of of literary achievements. Wow. That really is amazing. There's a lesson in there, too, because that was your second book. So, you know, a lot of people, if it doesn't happen on the first one, they quit. Yeah. Right, right. They've got one book, and they're just shopping that book around, and you've always got to be focused on the next thing. If something doesn't work out, you have to just keep moving forward and keep writing, keep honing your skill set, your craft, and, yeah, you can't give up. No, of course not. Good lesson in there. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. (laughs) And the more you're willing to tell us, the better, because that's how we all learn from these. Right, right. Yeah, so a lesson that I learned the hard way I, Nora Trier, the protagonist in Strike Me Down, the forensic accountant, is a whistleblower. That's her background, is that she was at a company that was owned by a friend of her father and discovered some shady accounting going on. The friend of the father tries to cover it up and tries to really gaslights her and, you know, tells her it's not what she thinks. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And so she goes to the SEC and becomes a whistleblower. And the consequences of that to her emotionally are staggering. Um, And the reason I was able to write that, and it was important to me to write that, was that I think there's this perception of whistleblowers as people who are just doing the right thing and it's an easy call, but it's not at all. I was never a whistleblower, but a lesson that I learned the hard way professionally was that I did get to a point in my career where I saw some things that were happening. It was essentially a revenue fraud that was happening around me with a certain set of people that were managing at the time. And I thought these people, that we were all a team, that we all had the same goal in mind, that we were all ethical and upright. And when they were blatantly trying to negotiate this fraud, I ended up having to become a whistleblower. I had I called the ombudsman, went through the interview process, and it was very difficult. And I didn't realize how difficult it would be personally to put yourself against your team and to stand up to say, this isn't right, we can't do this, and then have that the ripple effects of that afterwards where you are ostracized, you are seen as someone other than someone who's on the team. And so that it was hard for me. And it was a lesson that I don't think I could have learned without having gone through it, that doing the right thing is, is not always the easy thing. You know, had been up until that point, and I thought that we were all of one mindset when it came to ethics. But when it came, ultimately, when I had to stand up and call the ombudsman and stop, put a stop to what was happening, it was personally very, very difficult. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You're right, because to someone just hearing about it first time, for the first time from the outside, it seems very easy. Of course, you do the right thing, you know, but... It, when you're yes. In a situation, it's different. 
It's hard. Right. It seems very black and white. Of course, you would choose the right thing, and it's um, and you know you do, but it, there there are costs to doing that. Yes. Yeah, I have tried in the 80, 180 episodes plus now at this point to sprinkle in some ethics episodes mm. because it is an ongoing sad truth <laughs> of working in accounting for some people. And that, yeah, and I want to support making those good decisions as much as possible. So I hear well, that, that is a great service that you're doing then to make sure that ethics do get that focus and attention. Thank you. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? (laughs) The best piece of advice that I ever received, what I will go with my writing career for this one, it was from my mentor at Hamlin University where I got my Master of Fine Arts in Writing. She told me that, and this was during that whole before the query process of trying to find an agent and the whole addressing the whole idea of querying. She said, if you haven't queried at least 50 agents and been rejected at least 50 times, you haven't tried. Like, don't come crying to me if you've sent out two dozen queries and gotten two dozen rejections. You have not tried yet. And so it just really set my expectations for okay, this is what is expected. This is how I can prove that I'm trying. And so I went out and I sent out 50 queries, just just like Sheila told me. And then just for good measure to tell her that I had tried, I sent out five more. And it was the 51st query that I sent that I found my agent with. So if I had given up, if I had just cried over all my rejections and said this is never going to work out, I never would have found my agent. I never would have had this career. So that was the best advice I ever got. If you haven't tried at least 50 times, you haven't tried at all. Wow. (laughs) And it was the 51st. It was the 51st. And now that was actually in 2009. She has upped that piece of advice to 100. So if you haven't sent out 100 queries, in 2020, then you haven't tried. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine anything that would be more perfect to end this on. That was, wow, there's a lot of of good advice in that. Thank you so much for doing this interview because, you know, obviously we have interviewed many, many accountants. And frankly, we've interviewed several authors as well, but you're the first person to come on the show that has now chosen that as a profession. And so this has been a really intriguing interview. And I know there's other accountants out there that listen to the show that have a book in mind. So hopefully this, you know, will be inspirational for them as well. Thank you so much. Yes, I hope it will be. And to all those accountants who are thinking about a book or writing a book, get it done. Sit down, write your book, revise your book, and just keep pursuing it. Be dedicated and and you'll get it out there. Great advice for sure. Well, that was our interview with Mindy Mejia. Some of the takeaways I personally have from this interview were, number one, she passed the CPA exam many years into her career or even after her accounting career, depending on how you look at it, I guess. So that just says there's a lot of hope. You know, it really can be done. Yes, it takes some work, but it really can be done. And then secondly, and I guess 
obviously, the publishing journey discussion. That was a really interesting part and a large part, I guess, of the interview. I guess because I've published a couple books myself, but I'm an amateur. She's the professional. So I really enjoyed that discussion. And I'm hoping for anyone listening to this that, that has a book in their heart that they like to get out that this benefits you as well. If you did find value in this episode for yourself, please make sure and leave us a rating in your podcast app. We really appreciate that as well. I do have a couple books on Amazon if you'd like to check those out. 49 Tips for a Successful Accounting Career and 49 Tips for Working with a Head Earner. Sorry, I couldn't resist but mention that given that our guest today was an author. But please check those out on Amazon as well. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. And as I always say, we'll see you next week. There's more to come.